It's go time. The 2023 season is over in the Canadian Football League, but there's still lots to talk about as news keeps coming forward. Welcome to Third Down Gambler, everybody. I'm Don Charbon, along with Heath Graham and Pat Mooney. And first and foremost, let's talk about something really positive that's developed out west, where the BC Lions, the Canadian Football League, and the city of Victoria have come together. Announced just today, Touchdown Pacific in the 2024 season will take place in Victoria between the Ottawa Red Blacks and the BC Lions. No announcement of a touchdown Atlantic this year. It looks like the league is shifting to the West Coast for one, and I think it's a great initiative to further spread CFL football. Victoria is a, a major city on the West Coast, and it's it's great to see. We know Canadians love their football, and any opportunity to take it to new places I think is an outstanding opportunity for the league. Getting out to Victoria, it, it's moving away from Touchdown Atlantic. We've had seven previous Touchdown Atlantics. I, for one, am thrilled to see it out in BC. Now, this was a great initiative, and you're right, guys. These are great venues and events to be a part of when you get the opportunity. The game will be on August 31st, 2024 at Victoria's Royal Athletic Park. The province, the city, the Lions have all sort of chipped in to get this up to speed in terms of getting it game ready. As with the Touchdown Atlantics in the past, Touchdown Pacific will have a whole event surrounding the football game. One of the things that the uh, spokesperson for the event cautioned don't delay if you want tickets because typically these games sell out within a day i wonder if this has anything to do with what randy ambrosi talked about in his state of the league address where he was discussing having a very interested and very qualified potential owner in the east for a for an expansion team that maybe it's time that we look elsewhere for this promotional game and that there's enough going on with that development to take it away from the East Coast. You could argue that in a sense, but I don't think that's really at play. The main reason why this is being done now is because Omar Daman wants to extend the Lions' reach to Vancouver Island, and Victoria is a great spot. And with the Ottawa Red Blacks being the opponent, they had a fantastic game last year when they played, and I'm sure everybody will expect the same this year. The, the whole idea of this is twofold. One is to broaden the base, but the other thing too is to give opportunities to those centers that don't normally have a Canadian football game. And the fact that it's regular season is huge and Labor Day weekend, uh, okay, tire Labor Day weekend for a matter of fact, is another massive step. Typically BC is left out of the equation on that weekend. This gets them into the mix. I think this will also be great for the, the people who do play football in BC. We know that other sports have been very popular there. We've got people who play rugby, people who play lacrosse, and uh, you know what the West Shore Rebels have been playing out in Victoria for some time and have gathered a, a series of fans for there as well as the football programs uh, on the island. And I think this is an opportunity for them to, to see where they could end up in Canadian football. Exactly. And... I, I think it's a win-win regardless of how you look at this. What it says to the East, 
I'm not going to worry about that right now. Most likely those are still very private discussions being held, whether it's a team in Quebec City, whether it's a team in Atlanta, Canada. The CFL definitely wants to move east before it moves anywhere else because you want the balance of five teams on each side of the equation in terms of the conferences. I know there's been lots of people lobbying for a 12-team or even larger league. We, we need to pump the brakes a little bit. We need to get the 10th team up running, make sure all of the current teams are successful and have a solid fan base before we start looking at other markets. Now, there, there are a couple that come up. The interior of BC, Kelowna, Kamloops area is one. Quebec City is another market. So there are certainly ideas and and landing spots to expand beyond 10 teams but we've been other than the u.s expansion we've been at most a nine team league for a long long time so let's let's work our way to 10 before we get too carried away there's a great video on youtube about where the cfl could expand i'm sorry i can't remember the name or when it was posted but if you search cfl expansion in canada i'm sure you'll find it and all the possibilities and permutations of what cities uh, he even goes as far as saying Saskatoon, that's another uh, chance in maybe down the road. But for the interim, as you say, Heath, let's focus on getting number 10 out east, preferably in Atlantic Canada. Then you can add Quebec and then you can add somebody out west or maybe have two teams come in at once, one east, one west. So you keep that balance. Speaking of balance, there's some talk around how the Edmonton Elks ownership balances their future. We're, we're talking about looking towards private ownership possibilities, whether they maintain as a community-owned team. There is a committee now looking at all of these options and the future of the Elks organization. And I think it's a committee that needed to be struck. The, the Elks have struggled for the last few years with successive losses because of the product on the field, certainly, but also the stadium in Edmonton leaves something to be desired in the fact that the fan base is quite far away from the field. And I think that that experience, while it might have been good at one point when we've got stadiums like Winnipeg and Saskatchewan and Hamilton, now even Ottawa with the rebuild, you've got some great stadiums that really feel the atmosphere. And I think Edmonton struggled a little bit and we see that impacting them financially. Edmonton got caught in so many ways. Number one, COVID in 2020. But you're right, the team struggling at home, not winning, hurt immeasurably. Now, the team does have a bank account that they can stand on for at least the next season, so through the 2024 season. Tom Richards, the president of the club, basically outlined, and what Rick Lawlisher echoed, was that they need to get some more secure footing to weather storms like this, where you have a confluence of things that just add up to disaster after disaster. The Elks overall are still a strong franchise. They're going to be fine, but they're, they want to get some sort of idea as to what other avenue they can follow. There's no panic button here. They're taking their time. They're going to vet what they need to do in terms of prospective people, uh, in terms of what kind of influence they may have, whether it's uh, sell to the ownership of a new group 
or if it's somebody that injects capital and gets a part, bigger say in, in the board of directors as the non-prof. The, the biggest thing is you got to remember that Calgary had been an, a, basically a community-owned team. They went away to private ownership. In fact, if you look anywhere in the West, they've all had that and either ma- managed to maintain it or give it up to private ownership. In BC, would you argue that it was a bad idea to go to private ownership now that you've got Amar Daman there? He has been a great ambassador for the league and, and a great voice, really positive owner who is trying his best to rejuvenate the crowds in BC and he's been successful. We've seen attendance go up. They have a fantastic game day experience, which they have just continued to enhance. Private ownership for BC has worked. The one difficulty in Edmonton, and we touched on it a little bit earlier, is Commonwealth Stadium as well. It's a massive venue, even with closing the upper decks, which they're talking about doing for 2024, it still is a capacity over 31,000 fans just in the lower bowl. They may look if something trends the right way for Labor Day matchups or something like that. They do still have the option of expanding to the upper deck. But for all intents and purposes, that capacity of that stadium is going to be 31,000. It is a little bit dated and it's always hard with a league the size of the CFL to justify building new venues in these cities. But... It looks like we're 45 years in for Commonwealth Stadium at this point. It's getting towards the end of its life as a football venue. Well, let's consider McMahon Stadium in Calgary. That stadium is over 60 years old. It's still got a life left in it, but you've got to decide if you're the Stampeders, the city of Calgary, even the province of Alberta, do you want that venue to stay as is for much longer? You need to do major renovations. I don't know if you could do the same with Commonwealth, the way it's configured. And it was a product of a different era where bigger was better. You had the Olympic Stadium, you had CNE Stadium, you had BC Place, you had Commonwealth Stadium. Those were the four massive stadiums that were built all within a very short time of each other, CNE being a modification. That was the thinking of the time. Bigger was better. But what Winnipeg, Hamilton, Regina, Toronto have taught us is that smaller venues, closer confines for the fans makes it a lot better. It makes it, it's what Michael Lisko said years ago as commissioner, sell scarcity. And this is one way to create it. I think for me, having attended games in both Calgary and Edmonton, I still like the feel of the game in Calgary, although I think the stadium is substandard to Commonwealth Stadium. Uh, I like the feel because you are right on top of it and there's a vertical rise allowing people to be closer to the field. Where Commonwealth really fails the team, I think, is because it doesn't rise quickly and it, it drops back so far that when you're at the top of the first section even, you feel like you're so far removed from the, the field. And part of that's because of the track around Commonwealth but the other part is that vertical rise and, and the, the expanse of the stadium. So I do think changing that stadium could impact the game day experience. How do you do it though? I think you have to, if you're Edmonton, build a new stadium. Now the Car- the Clark Stadium uh, remnant is still nearby. They could actually build on that site if they wanted to. 
and then just demolish Commonwealth or leave it up for major, major events if need be, such as World Cup of Soccer, etc. The, the, the Stampeders with McMahon, I agree. I've been to both and the game day experience in Calgary is fantastic. Edmonton, yeah, you are swept back much further. Both teams probably need something and you can't, if you're in Alberta, you can't do one without the other. So you've got to figure out how you can work with both to create something new. The challenge in Alberta, though, is there is going to be a need for provincial money. So now you're looking at two markets in building that, whereas places like Regina and Winnipeg only have one major venue for an outdoor stadium. It's interesting when you look at the design of McMahon. It is quite reminiscent of old Taylor Field and the old Winnipeg Stadium as well. And it's the challenge is trying to justify to the tax base that it's time for a new venue. It took a lot of work to get people behind the stadiums in Regina and Winnipeg. And what they have now are world-class facilities. So it's a a, a short-term pain and, and and really working people to make them understand that it's not necessarily just a sports venue that's going to be used 10 times a year. It's going to draw concerts, other major events as well, and it, it becomes an entertainment hub. I, I'm blown away by the both the new stadiums in Regina and Winnipeg and the, the experience and the venues and the amenities that those places have. Calgary and Edmonton are going to need to catch up to that. We, we've seen some newer facilities or some reworked facilities in the East as well. And they're now kind of upping their game and you don't want to be the last one with the aging dinosaur. I think one of the other things that impacts is the timing. When you take a look at Saskatchewan and Winnipeg, when they built their stadiums, the provinces were booming economically and ready to do that. Now we're in a different situation in across Canada, really. And, and people aren't willing to put that money in the economy isn't on an upswing. And uh, I think there's a reticence to put that type of money into one single stadium, let alone two in a province. To a point, I will agree with you, but if you can, and this is how Hamilton got their stadium, if you can provide a world-class event that requires said stadium, then federal money starts becoming available to you. And then you could somehow split it between the two cities and each one gets a stadium. The biggest thing about these types of stadiums is that they don't reach what they did in Los Angeles or in Las Vegas over a billion dollars, almost two billion in some cases. These you can get away with for five to six hundred million, which between two cities, if you spend 1.2 or 1.4 billion dollars for stadiums, that's not bad. If if there is the push and the momentum behind the organization and the people within the city saying that this is a big draw and where Calgary and Edmonton also suffer is they have the NHL and they, they've got some other sports that will compete for those dollars. We've seen the NHL get new stadiums, but at this point the CFL hasn't had that same impetus. Don't forget though, the Stampeders are owned by the same group that owns the Flames. And the Saddledome is, by many accounts, not the greatest place for a concert. They want to get a new venue, so this would be tied together, I'm certain, with them. And there's been a lot of talk about that. 
don't be surprised if that comes as a package for Calgary. Edmonton, yes, it's two different scenarios, an ownership group of the Oilers and a different uh, community-based team in Edmonton. But again, you can't dismiss this. This Eventually, you're going to get to a point of no return and you're going to have to do something. So you may as well start planning now and figure out how this is going to work because the CFL is here to stay. How you participate in it is what you have to determine. One of the other hot topics this week is the head coach search that's taking place for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. At this point, we know it's now down to two candidates with the majority of CFL pundits saying at this point that Buck Pierce is the likely head coach in Saskatchewan, but it certainly came down at one point to Corey Mace. Uh, People thought he was the front runner, but in the last few days, it's turned more towards Buck Pierce. Thoughts, you guys? Two very worthwhile candidates. Corey Mace has been interviewed for head coaching positions in the past and was probably narrowly missing out on a head coaching position. This is the first foray for Buck Pierce. He refused to talk last year for a head coaching position that was available, wanting to stay on in Winnipeg as the offensive coordinator. It looks like the opportunity for promotion has motivated him a little bit here and is looking at his options for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. It really boils down to Jeremy O'Day and the powers that be of whether they want someone offensive-minded or defensive-minded as their head coach because you've got one of each right now that are are very prime candidates. With the way the Riders' offense has struggled maybe over the last couple of seasons, it's why they're leaning towards Buck Pierce. The Rough Riders' offense may have struggled, but it didn't struggle as nearly as bad as the defense did last year. The common thought is that if Buck Pierce shows up here, then Drew Brown will be following in his footsteps and become the quarterback. Then you've got this whole issue of, well, now what do you do with the rest of the stable? And that's a problem unto itself. TSN's Farhan Lalji has just reported that the Rough Riders have hired the former defensive coordinator with the Toronto Organauts, Corey Mace, as their head coach. This is big news. Corey Mace from Port Moody, BC. He's 37 years old. He's a Canadian. He's played with the Stampeders. He coached with the Stampeders. He coached very successfully with the Toronto Argonauts, his defensive coordinator. He's liked, respected. The Toronto Argonaut defensive players would run through walls for him. In terms of what the Rough Riders have chosen, this is the first time that Jeremy O'Day has had a chance to really sit down and think about what he wants his team to look like. This is a positive move. Jeremy O'Day has definitely been working overtime over these last several weeks. He had stated he wanted to have a decision and a head coach in place by the end of November. They just got it in under the wire. I think both Buck Pierce and Corey Mace were very worthy candidates. The Riders have made their decision and they are going with Corey Mace. What does this say for Jason Shivers, who was the defensive coordinator in Saskatchewan? Is he going to be retained? And does that mean that Kelly Jeffrey, for instance, stays on as offensive coordinator now that Corey Mace is there? Corey Mace, like any head coach, has to be comfortable with the people that he's going to work with. He may interview those individuals if he doesn't have someone in mind, but often those coaches will bring people that they've worked with before and maybe have an understanding. Corey Mace, having been in Calgary, may be looking at Mark Mueller to be the offensive coordinator and 
you know, he there's other people that he's worked with both in Toronto and Calgary previously that, that he's going to likely consider because he's had a tight working relationship with them and he knows who they are and what they bring to an organization. So as he takes a look at his offensive coordinator and, you know, defensive assistants, he's going to need to understand who they are and what they bring to the club. And if he doesn't have someone in mind, that might open it to some possibilities of former Saskatchewan Rough Rider coaches coming back. Given the success and the track record, that may not be a popular move in Saskatchewan either. Now, almost in anticipation of this, the Argonauts had signed their offensive staff back to the club. So Corey Mace, if he's going to be looking to bring anybody from the offensive side of the ball, won't be able to do it from Toronto. So it's going to have to come from experiences elsewhere, or he will look at what Jason Moss did in Montreal, review the staff that was there and said, I'm good with that. They're good people. Let's go forward. That could certainly happen. I think many teams would allow a positional coach to take a look at a step up to an offensive or defensive coordinator position. One returning name that popped up with Winnipeg in the speculation that Buck Pierce was going to be named head coach of the Rough Riders was the return, believe it or not, of Paul Lapolice as an offensive coordinator. Is that a name that the Rough Riders and Corey Mace look at moving back into the Rough Riders organization in that OC position? If I'm Corey Mace and I've had no experience with Paul Lapolice, I may as well be with the guy that's actually been with the organization, Kelly Jeffrey. That what, what am I gaining by grabbing somebody that I don't know anyway, either way? All head coaches have to do their due diligence in terms of vetting the people who they believe may bring something to that job. I think closing the door on anyone of the caliber of Paul Lapolice is maybe an irresponsible move. And I think that, that he needs to take a look at who are the individuals within the CFL organization and, and history of people that I could bring on to my staff that are going to give this team the best opportunity to win. If it's Paul Lapolice, it's Paul Lapolice. If it's not, then he's got to have other people that he believes are going to be able to outperform what Paul Lapolice could do. As a first-time head coach, you've got the options of going with who you're familiar with or going with people that have experience. And I believe that this is a situation where it's going to be a little bit of a mix of the two. I, I think for his comfort level, he wants to surround himself with with coaches that he has worked with. At the same time, you need to have somebody who's been there, done that, and seen it all. I'm not saying that Paul Lapolis is the guy. I'm just saying that he is a, a name that might be under some consideration. And I completely disagree that it's irresponsible. Paul Lapolis is a great offensive coordinator, but you've got to worry about the operations cap. If Jason Moss didn't prove anything, then what did he prove? You can go with the people that are there. If you coach them up, they're going to be better for it. And look at the, what the Alouettes did the last half of this season. This is about finding the right people. It's not about getting the right experienced people. It's about getting the right people. Right. And if Paul Lapolice is the right person after interviewing multiple people, who I believe should include Mark Mueller, because I think he would be an excellent choice as well then I think he's got to do the due diligence and make the correct decision based on his interviews and the people that he brings to the table. I don't think just because it's a retread coach or that idea of a retread coach that you ignore bringing someone into the table to have the conversation. But I'd like to know what Kelly Jeffrey did so wrong last year. The Rough Riders offense was not the issue. 
I, I think some people would argue that. I think the Rough Riders offense had some success, but it, if you take a look at the quarterbacks as a whole, they weren't the most successful offense in the league. You want to bring forward... But he was dealing with young quarterbacks. Jake Dolagala had barely a couple of games under his belt, and Mason Fine was the same. This was this is the same as Cameron Dukes in Toronto, putting him in, or or Taylor Powell, or Dustin Crum. What do you expect? You're going to have your ups and downs with these guys. I think the Saskatchewan Rough Riders fans, though, may argue that, Don. They want to see change in this organization. They want to see some new blood brought in, and bringing back some of the coaches worked in Montreal because they were a team that we continually thought were on the rise. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders are a team that stagnated over the last two years, regardless of who was coaching. And maybe that comes down to the GM, which we've talked about before, not having the right people in place as well. There were a lot of voices that were unhappy with Jeremy O'Day being re-upped in Saskatchewan. So with that comes, as you allude to, Pat, that need for change. And and I believe that you shouldn't necessarily let the fans run the organization. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop there and say it's not up to the fans to run this organization. But Saskatchewan Rough Rider fans are very knowledgeable and very passionate about their team and want to see it successful. There was there's a lot of outcry for change, and, and I think it's gonna be very tough for Corey Mace to come in and retain a lot of that coaching staff that's already in place. I think it was Marv Levy that said, if you listen to what the fans want in the stands, it's not long before you're joining them in the stands. You have to make decisions based on your better instincts and not what the media or the fans want. This is Corey Mace's chance to put his stamp on this team. Let him do it. Second down. The Blue Bombers are making headlines. They have signed to extension their general manager, Kyle Walters, and also other members of the staff that uh, sort of keep the group together, as it were. They do. Assistant general managers Teddy Gavea and Danny McManus also re-upped. And this is the group that has built this team to the powerhouse that they are today. Danny McManus, I don't think, spends a lot of time in Winnipeg. He is um, the the in charge of scouting U.S. talent as well. So he spends a lot of time in the southeastern United States. He's quite well known in the football circles down in that area as well, which allows him to convince a lot of talent to look north of the border. Teddy Gavea has built the cupboards of the Canadian talent for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers over the last several seasons as well. This is a, a tight group that works really well together. Mike O'Shea stated at the Grey Cup that he thought Kyle Walters would be back. O'Shea doesn't seem to be interested in pursuing a general manager position either, so this kind of takes some of that headache away from him. It does seem strange that you give your head coach, Michael Shea, the three-year contract before knowing that the GM team is going to be returning. Uh, is this a case where the Winnipeg Blue Bombers were just so solid in their belief that this is a, a group that we're going to hold together, that they, they waited until everything was done in, in the season before giving an extension? It looks like the uncertainty of the Saskatchewan Rough Rider situation was a little bit of a delay. Once Jeremy O'Day re-signed for a multi-year deal as the general manager of the Rough Riders. There aren't a lot of other options out there in the CFL right now. 
And it's a situation where these guys are comfortable in Winnipeg. They have found success and it's a matter of making things fit. Um, one comment from Mike O'Shea also talking about the, the operations cap. It puts a little bit of a hindrance on successful teams as well. He's not necessarily trying to go out and expand that coaching staff and hire more personnel but he is saying that the staff that's in place in Winnipeg deserves substantial raises based on their performance and they're currently handcuffed because of the cap. He can argue that to the cows come home. The problem with that sentiment is is that it's his boss and eight other teams bosses that agreed to this that they felt that there was a need for this if you want to nudge it one way or the other, open it up for more money to throw at more personnel, fine. But Mike O'Shea lately has been taking to the media to sort of air his grievances against the league. I don't think there's any question, though, that, that with the coaching fraternity, the idea of a salary cap that seems limited and hasn't really changed over a number of years holds back teams from rewarding great coaching. Uh, I think that's where Mike O'Shea is talking about it. They've had an extended success for four years. His people, in his mind, deserve a raise. And I think most people would agree that that organization's coaches have done an exemplary job and deserve a raise, but you can't give it to them under this current salary structure. If it were tied to inflation and had the opportunity to move up where you could reward some of the coaches doing the job, that might actually alleviate some of this as well. There's a fine balance to be found in this in this cap. And we see the other side of the coin situations like the Edmonton Elks and the Saskatchewan Rough Riders have found themselves in. The Riders probably could have moved on from Craig Dickinson earlier than they did, but were perhaps a little bit caught up in that cap. Same thing in Edmonton with Victor Cui in the situation with that organization, there was talk of Chris Jones potentially losing his job earlier on in the season when they got off to a rough start. If that was warranted or not is a whole other discussion. But again, those teams were both a bit hindered by the cap that was in place. So now you've got teams that are struggling looking to make change. You've got teams that are successful looking to make a change to the system. You're going to get a lot of support if both sides of that coin are are fighting for the same thing. But again, let's understand why this cap was put in in the first place. It was to control expenditure because money was being thrown all over the place at multitudes of coaches. Staffs were just ballooning and there had to be some sort of understanding that this could not exponentiate forever. So the CFL and its board of governors, they were all a part of this, said, look, okay, we've got to put a handle on ourselves and slow this down. Now, you could say, okay, it doesn't reward good coaching. To a point, yes. Again, the money side of the equation could grow and they could negotiate something better. But again, that comes from the member teams. That's not just the CFL. The other part of the equation is that it does provide, on the one hand, stability because you can't really jump around and fire people. But on the other hand, look what you brought out earlier, Heath. We're seeing new coaches come into this league. Head coaches, I should say, come into new positions. 
Now, with the new head coach, other coaches are going to have the opportunity to move into coordinator positions and potentially bring their income up as well. But I do think if you want to be fair to both players and coaches, there has to be growth on both sides. When the CFL players' salaries expand by X percentage, I think the coaches should as well, just to keep everything fair. Difference, though, that coaches' salaries are guaranteed. So if you get fired, you're still paid. Only certain portions of the players in their contracts get that guaranteed, and that's only half of the last season in most cases if you've signed a multi-year contract. So it's a way different sort of recompense in terms of how coaches are taken care of and how players are taken care of after the fact. I don't necessarily agree that they have to be tied to salary increments that the players get, but an increment maybe based on, as you suggested, inflation wouldn't be bad. I don't think that this operations cap is going anywhere, but I do believe that we will see some movement this year as to some changes to it. Yes, it was brought in by the teams to police themselves because they were getting out of control. I understand the need for it from that aspect, but it needs to have a little bit of flexibility. No team wants to be in a situation where they're paying three head coach salaries at the same time. I I get that, but you need to be able to make changes when things aren't working and not have to worry about this restriction in place. You're not working in a vacuum. Money matters and teams have to live within budgets. This is supposed to be competitive because everyone plays by the same rules. I I don't have a problem with it. I, I do think, as you say, having more money available might bring more people along. But having even mentioned that, we're still seeing people that want to be CFL coaches, whether it's coordinators, whether it's head coaches, people are still motivated by being involved with this league, even from the States. So I wouldn't necessarily poo-poo over all of this. Dismissing this isn't solving anything. I do agree with you, Heath. I think there will be some tinkering with this system. And and one of the areas I would suggest, of course, nobody's necessarily listening to me, would be to say, if a coach has made the Canadian Football League their league of choice for a long period of time, potentially there needs to be some recognition, much in the same way we're now seeing veteran players get that recognition. If you're going to commit to a team, commit to an organization, and stay for an extended period of time, I think that's great for an organization. Potentially, you can receive some remuneration for that. Another thing on Mike O'Shea's mind has been the back-to-back losses by the Winnipeg Blue Bombers in successive Grey Cups. And to be fair to O'Shea, that's a tough pill to swallow for anybody, player, coach, fan. Some of the things that came out of that game, other than the fact that Montreal refused to back down and with 13 seconds to go, scored the latest touchdown game-winning score ever in Grey Cup history. Zach Kolaris set a Grey Cup record with an 82.6 completion percentage. Cody Fajardo was the first quarterback in a Grey Cup to throw for two touchdowns in the fourth quarter. And the Blue Bombers recorded the second-highest second down conversion rate in Grey Cup history at 74%, the second highest time of possession at 37 minutes and 44 seconds. It's not like Winnipeg was terrible. They just didn't have an answer when Montreal came calling at the end of the game. 
any win or loss in a football game can come down to a handful of plays. And and we know this one is a prime example of that. There was opportunity for Winnipeg to take control of the game and they and Zach Claris threw an interception. There was opportunities to stop the late drive by the Montreal Alouettes and Cody Fajardo read the defense perfectly and executed when he had to. Either of those plays goes the other way and we are probably talking about the Blue Bombers winning their third Grey Cup in four seasons. It, it was that close. Now, had the game gone 42-7 to seven and it was a laugher, that's an entirely different thing. You can't nail, nail that one down to three or four plays that made the difference. That's a, a complete domination. The Bombers, if you look at the last three Grey Cups, they win one in overtime. They lose the next two by a combined five points. Those have been extremely competitive and very entertaining games and it's just those little differences so i don't know if winnipeg needs to look at massive changes to what they're doing it's just executing to a higher level when needed 30 players on that roster whether it's practice squad injured list whatever are 29 years and older on winnipeg's team so if you look at that specifically Yes, they've got some serious problems coming very quickly. And I think that's where Kyle Walters is going to have his hands full in in determining which players we need to move on from, along with Coach Michael Shea, and which players have that opportunity to return because we've all seen those players that have played at an extremely high level into their mid to late 30s as well and still add a great portion to the team. And that's going to be the the crux of this offseason for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers because I think they have the talent. There are a couple of players that have hinted towards retirement. No indication of exactly who that is, but one name that stands out to me is Stanley Bryant. He's now 38 years old. He's only one season removed from winning yet another Outstanding Offensive Lineman Award for the league, but with that comes a pretty high price tag. And this is an opportunity. Winnipeg's got some young talent that they need to, to secure as well. Dalton Schoen is one that comes to mind that's going to be due for a new contract. Brady Oliveira, depending on whether or not he does get an NFL look, he's going to demand a higher wage as well. So guys like Stanley Bryant might still be able to compete at a a very high level. Whether he wants to or not is one question. Whether Winnipeg can afford to have him on the team with his salary demands is another. If Oliveira does get pay boost if nothing works out in the NFL, which he's going to try. Money's got to come from somewhere. Now, the, they've done it with Andrew Harris, according to O'Shea, where they found money to pay him and keep everybody happy. But there are going to be some guys that took the hometown discount that may not want to do it anymore. They've been to two Grey Cups. They've lost them both. Maybe you believe that there is still one more left in the team. Most likely there is. You go for that, take the discount again, and stick with it and see what happens. It depends how much the discount is, too. If if you're going to make that money in the playoff run, then certainly you're going to choose to stay on a team that you think gives you the best shot, if it's a break-even point. But if you're looking at the average football player whose career is very short, they also want to make the money well they can, and not everyone's willing to give that up for an opportunity to go be a higher-paid receiver in a different location or a higher-played running back, or defensive back. It, it, it's going to come down to, 
Is the culture there to continue that process? Is the belief that this team is going to win and be competitive, get to the Grey Cup and potentially pull it out again? Uh, if if the team and the individuals believe that, then I think you'll see some of the players take that discount and return because this culture at this point in time, I think still leads the CFL. Could be the turning point in this Blue Bomber era where the team maybe takes a step back. The time is drawing closer to where this comes to an end and they have to retool. Much like I keep predicting the Ottawa Red Blacks are going to be a contender every year, you keep predicting that Winnipeg's going to fall off every year. If we keep with it, eventually we're both going to be right. (laughs) Third down. Free agency in the Canadian Football League officially opens on Tuesday, February the 13th of 2024 and that's this is the last time that players can sign with their club before they officially hit the open market this will be of course preceded by a week-long offer session that goes with brilliant idea and i think it's worked very well for our purposes granted montreal is still enjoying what they just did a week ago It's time to look forward to 2024 and focus tonight on quarterbacks. When you look around the league, there are not a lot of big-name quarterbacks that are FAs. The biggest one that I can think of is probably Drew Brown and Dane Evans. Those are the two names that I would toss out. Anybody else that you would think fits in that category. At one time, Nick Arbuckle would have been in that discussion, but certainly hasn't been for some time now. Matthew Schiltz is another one that's shown some promise. He's a free agent as well in Hamilton, and Hamilton chose to run with him rather than Bo Levi Mitchell at the end of the year. So I do wonder if if that's a decision that they're going to continue with. There are a lot of quarterbacks currently under contract with their teams. However, we know from a financial standpoint, teams start looking at what they can do, and, and some of these contracts might be terminated and allow these players to become free agents. If you look at who's signed right now, you could argue that just about every starting job is solidified. I believe there's going to be a lot more competition and and some movement there. And a couple of teams that have guys under contract right now that might be looking to change, the Calgary Stampeders have Jake Mayer, Tommy Stevens, Logan Bonner, and on the practice roster, Chris Reynolds currently under contract. I don't know if I saw enough from Jake Mayer last year to be completely confident with that quarterback room moving forward. That's where some of these free agents might come into play, or they might hope that somebody else does get cut and come available. Saskatchewan has Jake Dolagala, Mason Fine, Shea Patterson, all as FAs. Those first two took the lion's share of the snaps in the 2023 season. Trevor Harris who was injured against Calgary, is 37 years old. He's under contract. Of course, Antonio Pipkin, who they just re-signed for another year, who only threw one pass last year. His stats were impeccable. One attempt, one completion, 57 yards, one touchdown. So you can see why he was the top of the free agent list to get re-signed by the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. I, I do have a big question mark about Trevor Harris as well. The Riders spent a lot of money to bring him to Saskatchewan on a two-year contract. He lost most of last season 
with a with a leg injury is the comeback something that they are going to want to invest in is it something that he's going to want to invest in or is it a chance to kind of cut their losses you know if i'm winnipeg though i'm taking a look at my future right now you've got zach caleros at 35 dakota prukop if he resigns is 30 who's your future quarterback in that organization and if it is Drew Brown, maybe you've got to look at a way to try to compensate him. And that might lead to that salary structure change we were talking about in second down. How do you keep a backup quarterback who may play? Zach Kolaris has been remarkably healthy in the last few years, but all it takes is for him to go out. And then there's certainly going to be a shuffle, and some of it may be the backups as well. So Drew Brown, is he set on being a starter? Or would he be like Drew Tate in Calgary and be content to be a strong backup who's able to step in at any point in time and be successful? Zach Claris has spoken very highly of Drew Brown, saying that he has the potential to be the best quarterback in this league. I think Drew Brown has learned a lot over the last few seasons under the tutelage of Zach Claris. He's now 26 years old. I don't know how much longer he would be content in that backup role either. It's a, a coaching philosophy maybe they need to look at where both players will get ample opportunity. That might keep them there, but I, I believe being solidly number two and not guaranteed any playing time behind Zach is going to be a tough position for him to be in. I believe he's going to look for starting options somewhere else. Where that is, the Ottawa Red Blacks are another one that we can go through their list of, of quarterbacks and see if there's an opportunity there as well. Let's throw Hamilton into this conversation. Kyle Oxley is a free agent. Matthew Schiltz, as you mentioned, a free agent. But they do have Bo Levi Mitchell signed and Taylor Powell. Are the Tiger Cats, especially given Bo's speech after they lost the East semifinal, are the Tiger Cats that wedded to keeping Bo under contract at the salary rate that he is at? Or maybe looking at Taylor Powell, another one who really took most of the snaps for the season for the Tiger Cats. And at 25, they've got an eight-year window ahead of Bo's age to use him as a starter. It's a good question because that acrimonious conversation that he had with the media certainly looked like he was ready to move on from this organization and the esteem that they held him with it in that playoff game. There's been a lot of speculation that if Mitchell was to stay in Hamilton, that the Tiger Cats might be looking for a little bit of cut in the salary that's paid to him. Would Bo go for that? Maybe not, because you've got two concerns. One is obviously your own livelihood, but secondarily, a quarterback of his stature has to set a precedent for other quarterbacks coming up. It looks like we're getting into this bracket of quarterbacks in their mid-20s that are ready to step up into these starting roles. If you go through the list, Caleb Evans is 25 years old in Montreal. Now, he did have some starts in 2022 that didn't necessarily go his way in Ottawa, but he showed some potential here. He's the, the short yardage guy. He was very successful in that. The Ottawa Red Blacks have Dustin Crum at 24, Terrell Pigram at 26, Tyree Adams at 26, all behind 35-year-old Jeremiah Mazzoli. That's a, an organization that may be looking to change. Unfortunately for Jeremiah Mazzoli, those injuries over the last couple seasons have caught up to him, and he may be expendable or 
really asked to take a drastic pay cut to to stay active in that organization. Chad Kelly is only 29 years old, and Cameron Dukes right behind him is 25. He showed some flashes and got some playing time this year. We mentioned Taylor Powell, 25 years old. Drew Brown's 26. There's a lot of these guys in that age range that are looking for opportunity. Given that there's only nine teams, it's not a given that any of them are going to move into that starting role. But the competition come training camp could be very entertaining to watch. There are a lot more quarterbacks available in terms of maybe movement via free agent or trade than there are starting positions. Even in Ottawa, I mean, you go past Mazzoli. Okay, we've got Dustin Crum, but you got Terrell Pigram. What is going to happen with him? And Tyree Adams, who showed some great flashes and then blew out his knee. What do the Red Blacks think of all of this? Is Adams going to be even factoring into this? We kind of think that the situation developing with Nick Arbuckle is over. It, it just never worked out after his days in Calgary. Tyree Adams had a very small sample size, but looked quite promising. Dustin Crum had a lot more playing time, had some flashes of brilliance, had some games where he really struggled. But a one-two punch of those guys in Ottawa could be a, a very entertaining situation. Terrell Pigram, again, didn't get as much playing time. A very mobile quarterback needs to work on, on some of the throwing techniques to be competitive as well. But um, that's that's three young athletic quarterbacks for that Red Blacks team. And, and that's why I think Jeremiah Mazzoli might be on his way out. If Jeremiah Mazzoli and Nick Arbuckle are moved on from there, does that open the door as well for someone like Dane Evans, who struggled in Hamilton, took a back seat in BC, but may be looking to return to a team that might give him the opportunity to step on the field more? With young quarterbacks out front, he might be a person who's willing to take that risk in Ottawa. Dane Evans is a very interesting situation. If he feels he can be a starter, where would you want to go if you're him? Is it Ottawa? Is it Calgary? Or do you think that maybe you can hang out in BC, sign an extension, and get a chance there? Vernon Adams Jr. is pretty much set as the starting quarterback in BC. If you're Dane Evans, do you see that as a a wall that you just can't overcome? And then where do you wind up going? Does he go to Winnipeg, for instance? And that could be uh, the case. Dakota Prukop at, at age 30 is also a capable backup. So if you're bringing a bunch of 30-year-olds, I'm not sure you're setting yourself up for the future either. Let's let's play this out. Let's say that Taylor Powell, Dustin Crum, and Cameron Dukes, by some fluke, all become available. Who would be your number one pick? Of those three, from what I have seen, I would take Taylor Powell, probably number one, Cameron Dukes, number two, and Dustin Crum, number three. I, I know Dustin Crum showed some flashes early on, but he really seemed to struggle down the stretch. The Red Blacks just couldn't get a win. From what I saw, saw from the other two, the maturity was a little bit higher. Cameron Dukes probably has the smallest sample size of those three, and that's why I would be a lot more high on Taylor Powell as the number one choice. I tend to agree with you, Heath, and Taylor Powell being the first choice, but Dustin Crum has had a lot of opportunity to play in the CFL, and we've seen young quarterbacks struggle before. Vernon Adams would be the more recent example, but you can go back to quarterbacks like Anthony Cavill when he first got an opportunity he was young, had some real struggles in the game, and have 
having had the opportunity to sit behind an experienced quarterback for a period of time, they were able to learn the game and come back very successful. Crum and Powell both were raw rookies when they got thrust into the position that they were in. Crum threw for over 3,100 yards this season. I think that would surprise a lot of people. He was sixth overall in yards passing. And right behind him is Taylor Powell. Now Ottawa, let's remember, they've got to get a new offensive coordinator at some point. That could impact who among those people will be the starter because that coordinator may have his or her own choice. team we haven't touched on yet in this discussion is the Edmonton Elks. Trey Ford came on in the second half of the season as the starter. Taylor Cornelius had the bulk of the snaps in the first half of the season. What I saw from Trey Ford is very dynamic, athletic, fast, but has struggled to beat teams with his arm so far. It's going to be a a fun watch to see what happens there as well. We know Chris Jones has not given up on Taylor Cornelius yet as a quarterback option. He's basically stated that Trey Ford is the number one guy going into camp, but it's a wide open camp. Do they look at bringing in some further competition between those two and Jarrett Dagey, adding another body to to fight for that number one job and maybe somebody that's a bit more accurate and can put up yards throwing the ball and not just rushing? Elks wouldn't surprise me if there are at least five quarterbacks at the start of camp. It's a, a tradition with... Chris Jones, he never wants to anoint a quarterback prior to training camp. I don't know why. I don't know what he's afraid will happen, but he did that with Zach Claris in Saskatchewan, if you remember. It seems to me that he was very reluctant to name Trey Ford as a starter as well. He didn't have much to say. And and when Trey Ford came in and brought that element of excitement, you didn't hear Chris Jones come out and emphatically state he is our number one choice. I think a good veteran in that organization could help the youth in that quarterback room as well to understand the game and potentially be able to navigate the ups and downs of a long season. But who is that quarterback that you want? Is it, uh, is it Matthew Schultz, for instance? Is it Dane Evans? Where do you find this person? Again, we, we're not seeing, like we did a few years ago, where we had three top flight starters come available at the same time. This is a case where these are the guys that can start, but really the book is out on any one of them. When free agency hits in February, it's going to be quite interesting to see how this shuffle all lands out. I assume some teams are going to be looking to sign some of these quarterbacks prior to that time. And if they're successful in doing so, the remaining ones I think will be in fairly high demand as there's limited options at this point. And we look at those dates where bonuses are due to be paid, and that's often when teams will cut a guy loose that's currently under contract, making them available as a free agent as well. Before we get away from this, what about Saskatchewan? Jake Dolagala, Mason Fine, Shea Patterson. Shea Patterson has struggled to try to get onto the field, but the other two haven't. Do the Rough Riders try to sign one of the two, two of the two? Does Corey Mace change the equation in terms of who is going to be the starter in Saskatchewan? Trevor Harris is going to be the first piece of that puzzle with a new head coach. It's whether they are going to feel confident enough in his health, given his age, if he's going to be the guy to lead them. Once that is determined, if they if they decide they're keeping Trevor Harris, then you have to look at the surrounding pieces to support him. If they do turn him loose, somebody like Jake Dolagala or Mason Fine is likely to get a little bit 
more of a look because they're familiar with the team and the organization. Drew Brown, where do you want to go? Without Buck Pierce maybe shepherding you somewhere, are there other teams now that come into into view? I think the Calgary Stampeders, again, might be an opportunity for Drew Brown if they're not solidly in support of Jake Mara as their number one guy. They're the same age, 26 years old, and this could be a, an opportunity for Drew to come in and compete for that number one job. At the same time, Calgary may decide they're 100% in favor of Jake Mayer. Then you're looking elsewhere. He is probably the biggest free agent domino for quarterbacks right now, given the success that he has had with Winnipeg over the last couple of years. It looks like it's time that he has, has earned to get those looks as a number one guy. Where it is, if Buck Pierce remains in Winnipeg, he's going to have to shop around a little bit and find the best opportunity for himself. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again, the Third Down Gamble podcast, audio worth watching. Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by Canadian Football League player and game statistics, for analytics, game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.